Welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast. I'm Jen Stevens. I'm a retired teacher, the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Fast Feast Repeat, and I love nothing more than building community. And I'm Sherry Bullock. I've spent my life helping others through my work in healthcare and as a volunteer for various organizations. We are friends who share a love of learning, problem solving, and bringing people together. Each week, join us as we share inspiring stories and bring you new ideas designed to help you live your best life. So now let's learn something new, get inspired, and have some fun. everybody. We are so glad you're here today. Welcome to this week's episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. How are you doing today, Sherry? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to hear it. I have good news to share. Ooh, I love good news. What is your good news? Well, I've been feeling like poop for a long time. Yes. And I have felt for a long time like my hormones are out of whack. And I've talked to you about this for probably a year. Yep. And I've done a lot of research and we talked to Dr. Matthews and we talked to Dr. Kabeca and the whole time I'm like, they're describing me, but I couldn't get a doctor to listen to me. And it's been so bad that I've been so fatigued that I just can't do anything. And I went into my doctor's office on Thursday and I pretty much just browbeat him into (laughs) writing me for hormone replacement therapy. He actually argued with me about it and I stood my ground and I told him I've done my research and I know what I want. And it's really the worst thing that would happen is I don't feel better and that I would like the opportunity to try. And so he finally agreed. I started this on Friday. It is now Wednesday, and I feel like, oh my gosh, a new person. Like the light switch is back on. Yes, my brain works again. You've been running around in the dark, and now you're in the light, 100%. Yes. Yeah. That soul-crushing fatigue that I've been having is Mm -hmm. gone. Yep. I feel like just alive and energetic again. So, so I mean, I literally was feeling like I was 90 years old. I was like, is this it? Yeah. Is this the rest of my life? No. So this is my little PSA to you ladies. Mm -hmm. If you are struggling and you're perimenopausal or you're postmenopausal, find a doctor that can help you. And don't take no for an answer. (laughs) Yeah. Don't ask Jen and Sherry. We are not your doctors, but we know how much better we feel. And, you know, we've talked to doctors like Dr. Deb. And remember, just remember the advice that she gave to find a local compounding pharmacy, mm-hmm. go there or call them and say, what doctors write prescriptions for hormone replacement therapy? That's right. who you go to. You know, I can't tell you what the you know, the best thing to take is. Sherry can't either. Doctors have different preferences, but we can both just tell you that we're just patients ourselves who are sharing the news that, wow, this has been amazing. And your doctor will guide you through that or find a new one. So yeah, I'm just going to bioidentical hormone replacement yeah. therapy. It has absolutely changed my life in five days. So it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this week we have a heartwarming good news story shared by Christy Bear. So she recently learned about a couple, Leo and Ruth Zander, who have been married for over 66 years as of this past April. And that in itself is a wonderful accomplishment. But this couple is known for some other accomplishments as well. Together, they had 12 children over 27 years. Wow. Wow. 
I can't even imagine having 12 children that are 27 years apart from oldest to youngest. I mean, I have two biological children and now two stepchildren, and that's plenty. Feels like a lot, yeah. But yeah, I can't imagine. And they weren't even all in the house at the same time. My brother and his wife together have six between the two of them. They have two that are theirs and, you know, others. Right. Yours, mine, and ours, right? (laughs) So they're at a half dozen. These people had a dozen children. Wow. The eldest child had children of his own before the youngest sibling was even born, making the youngest sibling an uncle at birth. But the love and laughter did not stop there. They now have 129 grandchildren. Wow. Okay, so technically some of these grandchildren are greats, but in my world, that still counts. As of April on their anniversary, the count was 55 grandchildren, 68 great-grandchildren, and six great-great-grandchildren for a total of 129. In 2015, they were celebrating number 100. So in seven years, they have added 29 more babies to the family. They say that most of the family live in Illinois, which makes for lots of big family get-togethers for birthdays and holidays, and they often have to just rent out buildings at churches to accommodate the whole clan. And I did some web sleuthing because that's what I love to do. (laughs) Sherry is a detective. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) I actually found that they have a public Facebook page. And on October the 8th, Ruth is holding a newborn baby in a new profile picture. So I suspect there might be 130 grandchildren now. Wow, that is astonishing. So I actually added a link in show notes if you'd like to see pictures of this spectacular family. And I had to look up and see what the world record is. And unfortunately, they have a ways to go. The largest number of grandchildren on record is 247. But give them some time and they might top it. Well, that is a fun story. Thank you, Christy, for sharing that one. I loved it. So listeners, we need your stories. Send your good news story to connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. We want to hear about companies that have given you exceptional customer service. Give a shout out to a special someone in your life. Tell us an amazing story or share anything that might be inspirational to fellow listeners. We look forward to hearing from you and sharing your good news in an upcoming episode. So before we get to the life lesson of the week, we like to take a minute to tell you about one of the companies that we love. And today I want to talk to you about Zoe. I haven't really talked about Zoe for a while, but the reason I'm talking about it now, Sherry knows I'm going through testing with them again. And they don't actually offer retesting. So they said, no, we're not, we don't like to do that. But they, I begged them and then they said I could do it again. Because the first time I went through Zoe in 2020, let's just say I didn't have a good attitude about it. Sherry, do you remember? (laughs) Yes. You were a little bitter and angry. I was grouchy. We're going to say cranky. I am a big believer in bio-individuality, and that is that our bodies are all different when it comes to what foods work best for our bodies. And I really realized that in 2017 when I was researching for my second book, Feast Without Fear. And it was my second book and it was also self-published. But I realized that so much of, of what makes us unique in our gut microbiome, our genetics, so many different things about us mean we do not all process foods the same way. And sadly, when I went through Zoe, you know, they check your gut microbiome, they check your blood sugar response to these special, I'm putting that in quotes, special muffins Mm. that they send you. By the way, Sherry, there's only- very delicious. Only one muffin day now. Oh, okay. Only one. You have them in the breakfast muffins and lunch muffins. Then I just had my regular normal eating after that for the day. But 
one day of these special muffins and they check and see what your blood sugar response is and also how long the fat sticks around in your blood after you eat their special muffins. You have like a little finger prick and you have to drip all this blood on a little card and send it to them along with your poop sample so they can analyze your microbiome. But when I did Zoe in 2020, I was told by them after my testing that my body did not clear fat well and that made me super crabby. I didn't want to hear that. I was like, I'm sorry. I love butter. I'm not changing anything about the way I eat and you can't make me. <laughs> and they also told you you had poor blood glucose control, which you did they not did like tell me I had, felt like it was amazing. I didn't like that either. <laughs> right. Well, I didn't think it was terrible. But that's the funny story is now I'm doing going through it again. I have the CGM on. I was able to find my old data because remember before when we did it, you just had that little monitor for your blood glucose and you could just had to stare at the little screen, but you couldn't see the numbers. I uploaded it to a website. I think it was called Tide Pool or something that showed me what my actual numbers were. I was able to log back in and find my data from 2020 when I did it before. My blood sugar control in 2020 was much worse than it is now. And like my blood sugar would go up into the 160s regularly after eating back in 2020, even in, you know, it's very common for it to shoot up into the 140s after eating. So let's also remember too, you were going through menopause then. I was, and I was not on hormone replacement therapy as well. Yes, but I was also eating a whole lot of butter, a whole lot Uh of fat, a whole lot of dairy. And I've since read that too much fat in your blood can block you from being able to clear the blood sugar out. So if you eat a very heavy, high-fat meal and a lot of carbs in there too, it's almost like the fat traps it Uh in there with it. Your body can't use it. And it can't clear it out, and it like stacks up in your blood. Right. So... I actually have seen that in action because when I ate the Zoe muffins, one of the first set of muffins is a high-fat muffin. My blood sugar went up to like 128 when I had the high-fat muffin. Uh-huh. And, and that was higher than it went up with the other muffin. And like today, right before we record this podcast, I had an Ezekiel English muffin topped with homemade hummus. I didn't add any olive oil to it. And also sauerkraut on top. My blood sugar only went up to 99. Awesome. Over two hours after eating that. And so what I'm finding is when I eat just whole foods that are plants, even things like homemade pita bread and English muffins, things like that, pasta, rice, my blood sugar normally after I eat is going up to like 115, maybe 120, but I haven't even seen anything higher than one day it went up into the 130s and that was it because I had, you know, some... I was, was like challenging it, but it's astonishing. The highest I was able to get it was 130, and that was trying <laughs> to get it up. Anyway, it's just night and day. So by removing that excess fat, like they told you, yes. you probably needed to do. They told me that last time, and I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fat-free all throughout the fast. That's good enough. Anyway, so I'm going through it with more curiosity and the wanting to learn and implement what I've learned this time. Because I want to live healthy. Maybe I won't have 130 grandchildren, right? but I'd like to have some <laughs> grandchildren, right? And so this is the first time I've ever changed what I was eating without the goal being I need to lose weight. Right. So that's also kind of cool. But if you want to find out how your body responds to foods, only do this if you have a good attitude. I was going to say. Only do this if you're open to change. If you're going to be angry (laughs) about it, don't do it. Or grumpy, then don't do it. I'm like, I'm not kidding. (laughs) And also don't email us and tell us that the muffins are disgusting. We're telling you now they are. (laughs) Right. They're not good. They're science muffins. Okay. (laughs) 
Also, you know, if your monitor doesn't work, email Zoe. They'll help you. Yes. I'm just a big fan. But if you go to jenstevens.com slash Zoe, you can save. There's a promo code there. And I kind of talk about it. I need to update that blog post because it was from when I did it in 2020. So I want to update it with updated information once I get my results. But I'm so glad I'm doing it again with a new attitude and learning. I do have good blood sugar control. I told you about my Coke experiment, right? Yes. We were at my family's house and they had real Coke in the fridge. And like, I want to see what this does. I think it went up to 128. I had it on an empty stomach. Well, now you're making me want to do it again this spring. I know. But a plain, real Coke. This wasn't a diet Coke. It was a real Coke on an empty stomach. And my blood sugar only went up to 128. And my body handled it. It was astonishing. Awesome. I know. I'm not saying you should drink real Coke. But you get my point. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time for our life lesson of the week. This week's topic is a really difficult one to digest for many of us. And for others, it could reopen old wounds. All too often, this subject is avoided in daily discussion altogether. But I believe it's time we change that. The subject I'm referring to is child abuse. Cycles of abuse often last for generations, and the ramifications of the abuse impact not only the victims forever, but also our communities. We are joined today by David Pruitt, author of Relative Distance, So, David, welcome. I'm so glad that you are here chatting with us today about this. Thank you for sharing your platform with me. I appreciate it. And your story is a memoir, am I right? It's it's your personal story? Correct, with some larger themes and ideas in it. But yes, it's it's my story and my brother's story as well. Well, I know that it's important to share, but it's got to be hard to share also in some regards. But important to get it out there to let people know they're not alone, right? Well, that's true. You know, one of the things I learned in the process of writing the book is how uh, pervasive this issue is and how it is uh, sort of America's dirty little secret. One of the things that I discovered when I was writing the book is that there's 25 to 30 million Americans that have some history of abuse or neglect in their upbringing, and which is one of the reasons why I was motivated to go ahead and come forward with this and hopefully write a good book in the process, which I think I did. So, Well, go ahead. I think you did too. Before we get into your background and your story, what is the lesson you hope to share with our listeners today? You know, I wrote the book. The purpose of writing the book was not to necessarily, the hardness of our story is in the book, but it's really the journey beyond an abusive upbringing to finding your sense of purpose, the place where you belong. And uh, hopefully we'll get to talk a little bit about that. I had some specific things that I talked about in the book that certainly helped me. And maybe some of that would be helpful to your listeners. Well, I just really want to start by telling you, like listeners, if you're listening and you're thinking this doesn't apply to me, I want you to sort of listen to this with an open mind, because I guarantee you in some aspect of your life, this probably applies to you. So I want to thank you for writing this book because my husband has shared stories of his past. He grew up in a very unstable home, a volatile father, a mother who left, And, you know, I've heard his stories and he suffers today as a result of things that happened to him in his childhood. But it was hard to, I mean, I hear his words, but he's not a great communicator, right? So to be able to like read your words, and especially when you describe in the book how uncomfortable you get in social situations, and you mention like feeling sometimes like you don't belong, like with your peers and neighbors, you felt like maybe you held your wife back a little bit socially, like maybe you had a little imposter syndrome going on or something, that really struck a chord with me 
my husband has tried to share that with me, but not as eloquently as you did. And he is not a social person. He's kind of socially averse. He doesn't like to go out in big groups. He's doesn't trust people where I'm a social butterfly and I love the energy of people and all of that. And he doesn't. And like, I'll be like, why? Like, why can't you just try? Reading your book helped me understand him in a whole different way. And I guarantee you that everybody out there is dealing with somebody in their life who has suffered abuse as a child. And some of the way they are today is based off of what happened to them in their childhood. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, you carry it with you. I mean, even if your experience maybe was very different from your husband's and from mine, but you still carry things from your youth things that happen. It's part of who you are. It's the core. It's part of your being. And you just carry it with you. And the key to moving beyond an abusive upbringing is learning how to carry that in a way that allows you to reach your full potential. Absolutely. So to me, that's the mission. That's the trick. That's the challenge. That's what I worked at. Talk about social situations. You know, I was CEO of a company that had 2,000 people and I used to have to speak in front of them. And you can imagine how much I really enjoyed that. Yeah, but I needed to do it and I needed to do it well because it was important yeah, for the company's mission and everything. So, you know, you learn how to do the things that you need to do, whether or not you're totally comfortable doing it. And I'm sure that's what your husband struggles with. You know, he, I, you know, I fought myself in social situations. I literally had to, you know. Talk yourself up. Tighten myself up. to, And yeah, once I got out there, I was fine. But it was it was a challenge. And I empathize with your husband, but I'm sure you're kind of like my wife. She's very much a social person. And I learned. I adapted. And I'm sure he will over time, too. He's still young. We'll give him time. <laughs> That's funny. He's a little younger than sure. He's 10 years younger than me. So. <laughs> well, David, tell us a little bit about your story. You know, the listeners, of course, haven't haven't heard it yet, haven't read your book yet. But but share just, you know, a little bit of that here today. Okay, so I was born and raised in Greensboro, North Carolina, on the eastern side of the city, which was the less affluent side of the city, I guess. And I had two older siblings. My father was a factory worker. Uh, He was a hard worker. He had tremendous work ethic, and I think he gave that to me, and I I appreciate that, and I've used it during my life. And my mother was mentally ill, and I didn't understand that as a kid. My father, even though he was a hard worker, responsible guy, he paid the bills, kept the roof over the head. He was subject to severe mood swings, and he verbally and physically abused all of us, including my mother. And my mother, who was schizophrenic, I know that now, I didn't understand it then. Uh, She was out of our lives by the time I was 10 years old. And my two older brothers, because of of a lot of things, but certainly the environment we were living in, uh, they were both homeless by the time I was 18 and uh, on the streets of Greensboro. I almost joined them when I was 18. My father kicked me out and I played sports. So I had a family that kind of took me in and I got on my feet and I went to the local. Knowing my family had ever gone to college, but seeing the challenges my brothers had, I decided to apply at the local university. I got my first generation college graduate. I became a licensed CPA. I spent 35 years in corporate America. 20 of those years were either as a CFO or a CEO of the company. We grew a Chapel Hill North Carolina, a little bicycle retailer that had 10 stores when I started to well over 100 stores and the largest bicycle retailer in the United States. And But all the time that I was making that journey and I married a wonderful woman, we had two great sons who I'm so proud of. I carried this stuff, you know, it was a challenge and made things harder for me. And what I didn't know at the time is that both of my brothers who were homeless 
one got off the streets, thank goodness. But one, all that time I was working in corporate America, I lost him for like 27 years. He was homeless for a significant part of that time. When I retired, we sold the business. I found my brother. He was in Texas. When I retired, I started writing just these episodes that had always stayed with me. And I found him and went to see him. And I learned his story. And, you know, sleeping under overpasses, backpack on his back, jumping freight trains, working in labor pools and just trying to survive. And he, yeah, he related to me how much that earlier time had an impact on his life. I knew how it had impacted mine, even though my trajectory was a little bit different. Once I saw that, and then I began researching something called adverse childhood experiences, which you know we can talk about if you like. I think it'd be educational for your listeners. Absolutely. Once I learned about that and I learned how pervasive this was, and I always liked to write anyway, and I'd always, when I was 26, I told my father-in-law as he was interviewing me when I was dating his daughter, <laughs> he wanted to know what I was going to do with my life. And I told him, well, I'm going to work. So I'm 55 and I'm going to stop and write a book. And somehow this wasn't the book that I envisioned, but it turned out to be the thing that really I felt was the most important thing. Anything else seemed trite to me at that point in my life. And so I wrote about it and I told my brother's story. I told our story, but there's challenging things in the book. But I do want your listeners to understand the real idea of the book is successfully moving beyond it. These Mm -hmm. two very different journeys, my journey in corporate America yeah, rising to whatever I rose to in, in that world. And then my brother's journey as a homeless person in America, which, by the way, I learned a ton about homelessness in the process of writing this book and just the path to successfully move beyond it. That in some way, some young person who's getting out of a difficult environment, they're trying to get their feet up under them and get their lives moving in a positive direction. I mean, I hope that charting this path, lighting this path that we've lit with the book will uh, give them some kind of inspiration, maybe guidance. And and really, that's what I'm trying to do. You know, I, I didn't relish telling this story. Right. <laughs> I didn't want It's to. hard to share it. Did you originally start writing the book knowing you were writing a book? Or was this just sort of therapeutic? You wanted to put this on paper and get it out of your head? That's a great question. I'd always been so busy, right? I We were growing a company and I was traveling and opening stores and doing a lot of things. When I stopped working, I had all this energy and I was trying to figure out where to put it. And I always loved to write. I used to write for board of directors and for people that work for our company in terms of message and vision. And I went to the library one day and I started writing this fictional, I love history, and I started writing that. And it just seemed, yeah, I was in a moment of great change in my life, right? I just quit work. I was now in this new thing in my life. And yeah, I just started writing these scenes and that seemed more important. And then once I found my brother, then I knew it was going to be a book and I knew that I was going to carry it forward. So that was a long way of me answering your question, but I hope that I did. <laughs> I have a question about your brother. Is Was he the oldest by any chance of the family or middle child? He was the middle child. Okay. And now my older brother was homeless too. And I recount right. that in the book as well, but you didn't ask, but that was a tremendous advantage for me being the youngest child. I was thinking uh, if that was part of the case, because I know that birth order does play a role in the family, like maybe is the older brother or the oldest brother got maybe a little harsher treatment, perhaps? I think that, I think my middle brother probably, you know, we're not grading treatment, but I think he actually took it the worst because one of the things that we learned when he got off the road, he married a wonderful woman and he's doing fine now. He's doing great. Thank goodness, which is the most important thing. I'm so glad. That's wonderful. Yeah. But we learned that he had PTSD from our upbringing. 
and we learned that he was bipolar too. Okay. And so no one understood that when I was growing up. My father certainly didn't understand it. And I would say he probably was the recipient of more. We all had our difficult episodes, but he certainly had more than his share, I think it's fair to say. Birth order did help me. If he was struggling with mental illness, it makes sense that he would not respond very well and that would escalate a situation. That makes sense. I also had to wonder when reading the book, when I saw that your brother was ultimately diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and we know that you know does tend to run in families, mm-hmm. you said your dad was very volatile with mood swings. Looking back, do you think it's likely that your dad was suffering from some mental illness like bipolar disorder? Mm-hmm. I think so. I, I think he probably was. And, you know, one of the things, a really interesting statistic about abuse is that, so my father, and I indirectly touch on it in the book and the chapter about, you know, my father instilled a faith in us, which again, I give him credit for that in terms of faith in God, but he was severely beaten when he was growing yeah. up. And 30% of children who are abused as children wind up abusing their children. Right. It's hard to break that cycle. How did that change you as a dad? And I think I may have had, my mother was a bit distant, but she was a gentle, kind soul, I think. And I just didn't have that in me. I knew I was never going to touch my kids. That just wasn't going to happen. You know, there were going to be boundaries and we were going to, you know, try to raise them and and give them the values they needed to be successful. But I was never going to touch them. I don't know why. I think I talked about role models in the epilogue, which uh, I had some role models outside of my home, which is so important for a child growing up in a difficult, dysfunctional family to find those role models outside of the home. And I found a few of those. And I think that broadened my perspective. And and I just love my son so much. There was just no way I was going to do that. Yeah. I actually loved your very first role model. Will you share with our listeners who your first role model was? So I had two early ones I, I think you're talking about. And this is probably Andy Griffith. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, let me do that. I know that this will be some of your audience may tune us out here. I don't know. But anyway. No, our audience probably all gets Andy Griffith. And <laughs> fun fact, the home of Andy Griffith is not very far away from where you grew up. It's Mount Airy, right? In that Mount, Mount Airy is correct. Yeah. So you find your role models. Like I found a teacher when I was young. But uh, you know, the thing that really struck me and it was so helpful is that Look, the Andy Griffith show, we all know it's a fictional show. We all know that there's a little bit of Backwood South portrayal in it. But what I really honed in on as a kid is that father-son relationship between Andy Griffith's character and Ron Howard as a young boy. And just those morals and those life lessons that were taught. You know, I mean, Andy would be tough on him, but he was always, there was always a purpose to it. And he was always... You know, he was strong, but he he was a role model. And, you know, a couple of the episodes in particular, which I relate to in my book, really made an impression on me when he was firm with him. And I, I remember the one episode where the child, Opie, asked him if he was going to whip him. And he said, no, this is the one when he had the slingshot and he killed the birds in the tree, right? But Andy opened the window sash and he said, but just listen to those birds chirping without their mothers. So he was teaching in a way that wasn't violent, right? But he was teaching. He was always teaching. And I saw that relationship, the give and take, the fact that the father could listen to the son and and would take the son's perspective into account. And there was trust and love. And that was so helpful to me because it, it told me, even as a child, that something wasn't right in my home and this isn't the way that it was supposed to be. And it was this way, but it wasn't necessarily my fault that it right. was this way. And so it was so helpful to me. And I really hung my hat on that. And 
you know, it's so funny. I'm, when I was raising my kids, I catch myself <laughs> doing Andy Griffith's type thing. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm sure, hey, it turned out they're both doing well. So I guess it was good. But uh, I love that you broke the cycle and that you learned what not to do and you didn't want to be that. But you also, with Andy Griffith, learned what to do and how you wanted to be. And that shaped you as a dad. You know, I caught myself. I think we all do as parents. You know, we have kids. You know, kids are, my gosh, I couldn't love my kids anymore. But when they're a certain age, they're challenging. There's no question. That's just what it is. Yeah, you know, I catch myself not being as patient as I should, but you know, I had enough, I guess, awareness to catch myself and I made a few mistakes, uh, never touched them, but they're doing great. But I think I related a mistake in the book when I got so frustrated with my youngest son's behavior with my wife, because my I'd walk in from working like 12 hours and my wife would say, you take him, <laughs> you know, and, uh, yeah, which was really funny, but, uh, and, and I, Got impatient with him one time, but I'll never forget it. He told me I'd said something to him. I I related in the book. He called me on it, and I immediately knew what I was doing because it's what my dad did. And I caught myself, and I never did it again. And uh, yeah, you learn. I mean, you got to learn from it, right? So, but anyway, no, it was Andy Griffith was big. It's funny. I, I knew when I probably put that in the book that might kill it being a New York Times bestseller. But hey. It was true. It was true. I, know, I think those of us buying books remember Andy Griffith, right? <laughs> our our generation, we're still the ones buying the books. <laughs> Listen, my husband had a doctor here in town and, well, it was his therapist, his counseling office. They, I don't know what TV channel they had on, but it was Andy Griffith all the time. And you'd sit in the waiting room and it'd be Andy Griffith's playing. Maybe it was on a loop. I don't know. Maybe they had an old VCR tape, but uh, yeah. And I really, I remember thinking what just a great show it was because there was always a lesson in every show, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes Andy learned a lesson, but then sometimes it was Opie and it really was a great show. Andy so was, if you Andy was open to letting Opie teach him a lesson. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Which Not that cute. I'm the boss and you're going to do it my way. Listen to me. So. No, and it's funny raising my kids. I, I'd occasionally, they'd get on from school and I'd put it on there when I knew it was a good one, you know, and had a good lesson and a good moral that they could learn. I'd try to just put it on while they were downstairs playing just to see, you know, hopefully they would absorb some of it. But uh, yeah, who knows? But anyway, it's certainly... Certainly helped me as a young young boy, that's for sure. I love the way you are able to tell your brother's story for him in the book. I think a lot of people have preconceived notions about homelessness. And we actually did an episode, oh gosh, probably 18 months ago. It was a while back. Yeah, about homelessness and, and an organization that went out into the streets to them to help care for them. And we learned so much then. But I think so many people think well, you know, I can get a job and I can work and I can keep a roof over my head. They can too, if they would just pull up their bootstraps and do it. Mm-hmm. But it goes deeper than that. It does. It does. It does. And yeah, you know, it's funny when I was writing the books and my brother agreed to let me share his story and I wanted to protect him because I see there's a very thin line between the trajectories of our two lives. For one of a decision here or there, things could have gone very differently for either one of us. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's really interesting. He was worried early on. So I wrote the book. I got some really positive reviews. I did some local TV and they were, it was great, you know, and he found the local TV in Texas, right? He was worried about how people were going to perceive him 
he's had people that he knows in Texas that's changed their view of him and it's changed their view of homeless. The homelessness issue, which, by the way, is is an issue that's really just out of control in this country right now. There's 600,000 homeless people in the country. There's 8 million people that are, uh, they pay more than 50% of their monthly income in housing. So their housing stability is in question, right? And, and shelters these days are being overrun. It's really an issue. I've written an article, by the way, which is going to be published on foxnews.com. Uh, here in the next couple of days, but on the homelessness issue, because my brother really educated me about it because I was the same way. I was working 60 hours a week trying to raise my children and I would see these folks and I I didn't fully understand it, right? You know, why had this happened? You know, Uh, a quarter of those 600,000 people that are homeless in this country, it's just, they have a severe mental illness. Right. And this country's moved, it's moved toward deinstitutionalization. Right. Number of beds that are available for folks who struggle with mental illness, it's down like 35% in the last 20 years. I work in an ER. I see it on every shift. Right. Yeah. We house so many people waiting for psychiatric beds for days and days and days because they're just not there. And I think the whole idea of of why to not shove everyone away and just shove them away, I mean, they might have meant well. You know, like we're not going to just put people away forever, but it's had an unintended consequence of now people are not able to get help. And there's a balance somewhere in between, you know, putting people away forever and throwing away the key versus we're not going to do anything. There's got to be a a way that we can help as a society. And it really, it really, when you see it in the big cities, especially, and and you realize how much is actually happening out there, we we can do better. No, we can. And I I think it's, you know, the whole thing years ago, moving away from this institution, it's it's the way we executed that that was right. Really, the, like the I think that the idea was, you know, hearts were in the right place, right? Yeah, I think I think so. I, I think so. But I will tell you, you know, as, as pervasive as the mental health illness issue is relative to homelessness, that's not the issue in homelessness in America today. The issue in homelessness in America today is the lack of affordable and available housing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've got all these places where, yeah, they're zoned for single family homes, you know, of a certain yeah, you know, there's no you know, apartments, duplexes, all that stuff. It, there's just not suitable housing for people who struggle and, and their incomes are a little bit not as big as some, right? And so right. there's just not that housing that's available. And, You're right. uh, and and that's really, I mean, you go in some places, you know, Los Angeles or San Francisco, even Seattle, it's so expensive to live there, you know, and, and people just can't. There's people in some cases with six figure salaries that are just hanging on, you know, it's a, yeah. That's really the issue in homelessness. But there is an element, which was my brother, where there's a young person who was raised in a dysfunctional environment who has to go out into the world because they're running before they're ready right. to be responsible and independent and productive. And that's really what happened to my brother. And I think once you get out there in it, and it's hard know, to get out of it. It's, it's hard. It's hard to get out. And I'm so proud of him for getting out of it. You know, I see him as the most resilient part of our story. Mm-hmm. And uh, just telling his story alone was just worth it for me. And I'm, I'm so happy the reception that he's getting and the positive feedback that he's getting in terms of people now more understanding his life and where he came from. And he's such an example to me. He has such empathy for the homeless. I mean, he carries water bottles out to him. He, yeah, he bought, yeah, I mean, he, he understands it, right? He lived right. it. So. Right. Anyway, I did want to say, 
quickly on my book, though, my book is not an income producing activity for me. All proceeds from my book are going to go to organizations like Prevent Child Abuse America. You know, I just want to give back. I'm so grateful for my journey. I want to raise awareness and take whatever proceeds I can get from this and just put it in a place that helps protect vulnerable kids. So that's really what I'm trying to do with the book. And I got off topic, so go right ahead. I love that. Yeah. I was actually just going to share with you years ago, I worked with an organization. Uh, I used to live in Kansas City. And these there's chapters all over America. It's Bikers Against Child Abuse. Have you ever heard of them? Bikers Against Child Abuse. Now, those uh, those are motorcycles. And we're not talking road bikes. We're talking motorcycles. Yes. <laughs> I know. Uh, but uh, They went to bikes. But, uh, yeah, I understand yeah, motorcycles. Yeah. Yes. What we did was we were referred to children through the courts or social services. Mm-hmm. And these were kids who were abused, but most often going through court processes, which is very stressful and can be very intimidating for kids. And so we would go out and we would adopt them into our BACA family and we would write out and we would visit with them. And if they needed, I mean, so sometimes like the perpetrators were harassing them, following them to school, that sort of thing. We would escort them to school. We would escort them to court. We would sit in court if they needed to. It was so eye-opening to me, the things that go on that aren't even showing up in the news, right? I learned then that people don't want to talk about child abuse. Mm-hmm. It is like yeah. this kind of dirty little secret. It's taboo. Every once in a while, you'll hear a news article about, you know, a child was killed through child abuse and they talk about these horrible conditions or whatever. But I guess my disappointment is, where are the public service announcements? Where are the advertisements? Where are we like directing to children while they're watching television programming? Like if you feel like you're in danger or you're being hurt, this is where you turn. Or why are we not educating parents on what to do when they're overwhelmed and feeling violent? We're missing a giant piece in the puzzle as far as education and resources to prevent child abuse. I can speak to a little bit of that, and that is through the public schools. You know, I was a teacher for 28 years, and we had, you know, every year we had training everyone who works with children and and comes in contact with them throughout the day, from the bus driver to the cafeteria worker to the classroom teacher, everyone on that campus. We are mandated reporters. And, you know, our guidance counselors do have, they teach the children you know, they have lessons on this type of thing, you know, and and we make sure the kids know that we are a safe place where they can talk to us about things. You know, as a teacher, I don't know if I'm going to be able to tell the story without getting emotional. I'll try to keep it simple. But I remember back, it was 1993, a fourth grade student shared her horrific abuse with me as a teacher. And I remember it to this day. And, of course, and we had to get her help. She got it. She was taken out of the home immediately. But it's happening. It's happening through these people that have the contact with the kids day to day. You know, we're there and and we become their trusted go to people. Well, that makes me feel better. But so much of it still <laughs> slips through the cracks. And I think but, oh, they, I know they still do. Yeah, there's this perspective, too, that I think some people think, well, we've as a society, we've moved beyond that. But we haven't. There are four million calls to child protection agencies each year involving 4.3 million kids. Five kids in America today die from abuse per day in this country still. So it's not behind us, you know. Mm -hmm. Now, there's also the foster home system, right, that become the average stay for for an abused kid who's getting out of a dysfunctional situation is supposed to be, 
you know, a matter of days, but it turns into the average is like 20 months. So you've got this kid who's being shuffled around, you know, in these key years when they're developing and they're, they're getting a sense of their self and who they're, who they are, and they don't feel valued in that so time. Mm-hmm. If the abuse wasn't traumatic enough, now they have this other trauma added it's, to it's it. uncertainty of and home security, a lack of home security, right? To add to the mix, these children are, are angry with reason. And so they have emotional problems that have, have come out of all this uncertainty. They have not had a stable home. Now they're being moved all around. They're acting out. And it's heartbreaking. And, you know, when you said the problem is not over, if anything, I think it's getting worse. You know, I started teaching in 1990, and this story was from 93. But before I retired in 2018, I saw things are not improving. And in fact, mental health of children is in crisis right now. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I, I am here to say that as an abused child, that you can still move your life forward to a productive place, to a place where you can find you know, your place in the world around you and know, be with people who love you and you're part of their lives. You know, that's, you can do that. I know because I did it, you know, and, right. and, I'm, and I'm so blessed to have done it. And there's no magic about me that made that happen. You know, it's just that I think it starts with, and I, I refer to it in the epilogue of my book, I, the five things that moved me to a better place. And one of them was finding those role models that we spoke of earlier outside of your home. You're not going to find it necessarily in your home, although you're one of your siblings may be heroic in that situation. I don't know, but you can still find those role models outside of your home. You know, intellects that you respect, character and integrity that you admire, warm-hearted people that you see and you see that's present in the world. You know, finding those role models and not getting so stuck in the four walls of your home in terms of your perspective. And even as a child, you know, you can see those things. So that was big for me. And I want to say this because that's what I want your listeners to get, you know, faith was big for me. You know, it's a secular world that we're in now. I get it. But faith and, you know, prayer for me as a child who didn't have a lot of hope was so sustaining and so comforting that it, you know, it gave me, it gave me hope. And this, this thing that was more powerful than me, that was stronger than I was, that could help pull me to a better place. That faith was just so critical for me. You know, faith played a role for my brother, he uh, had the backpack on his back traveling across America, but he had a Bible in his backpack. And it was really amazing because when I found him after 27 years, yeah, I was this guy who, who prayed and you know tried to get myself to a better place and tried to be a better man. But he, uh, he could quote chapter and verse in a way that I can't even touch. So faith was a part of it for us. I think discovering what your talents, what your abilities are, what your passions are, even as you, you know, you're in your teen years, but you can still be looking and seeing those things. You know, maybe you're creative. Maybe you like to write. Maybe like me, you have an analytical mind that can help you in a business setting. You know, whatever that talent is, it's available. But the two biggest things that you have to find as an abused child to be a productive adult, it seems formulaic. It seems so obvious, but it, it's so important. And the first one is courage mm-hmm. because you have no self-esteem. Right. When you're an abused child, you were told that you weren't going to be anything, that you weren't any good. And so you see these things, you think you might have this talent, but you don't have the courage because you don't believe in yourself. You have right. to find that courage and make that try. And if you make that, you can make that try. You'll be so surprised at what you're capable of. Right. And so and once you get the courage, then it gets down to just pure 
And these are old fashioned words, but I think they're still determination Mm -hmm. because when you start on the road to trying to better your life, coming from a dysfunctional family, you're going to have some failure. In my case, academically, I was so far behind because I didn't care about school all through high school. Yeah, that was the least of my right. Oh, yeah. How could you? I just wanted to get out of my house. You're trying to survive. That's all I wanted, you know? And so I was, by the time I realized that I had to, if I wanted to take my life to a better place, I had to gain knowledge. I was so far behind, you know? And so there was some early failure. And so determination is so critical because when you fail, you can't, you can't stop pushing. You've got to keep reaching. But my gosh, when you start to accomplish a few things, then it's iterative. It just right. that self-esteem that you didn't have as a kid, you're able to kind of shake that because, wow, yeah, I'm doing this stuff and people like it and I'm good at it or whatever, you know, whatever that situation is. And and that's how you, you kind of lift yourself and take yourself to a better place. So. I, th- I think there's one more. Okay. If you don't believe in yourself, you have to have somebody who believes in you, who is willing to push you because until you have trust in yourself, sometimes you really do need, you need a push. You need somebody to help prop you up and somebody in your court. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think you're right. I think I'm such an introvert. (laughs) Uh huh. I, I relied on myself so much, but I think you're absolutely, I think you're right. And David, I have to just say this. You talked about your brother being the most resilient person you know, but I think you should also look in the mirror because you've got a lot of resilience and that served you well. So that that trait is right there with you as well as your brother. Well, it's kind of, kind of you to say, you know, look, I'm, I'm just very grateful for my journey. and But I know to me, given my background and experience, there's nothing more disturbing to me than to see the potential of an innocent child be stolen because of the way they were raised. Right. Right. I mean, all that potential that's there, all that capacity to accomplish and to be a good human being most of all. Right. But all that that's there, I know what it looks like for that to be taken away simply because of the way you were raised. Right. And so I just want to shine a light that you can't let that be taken away. You've Mm -hmm. got to, you can achieve, you can do things and you can, find your place in the world. So that's really what the book is about. Your past does not have to be your destiny. Yes. It does not. And it seems so cliche-ish, but it really has a meaning when you've lived it, right? And so, and that's what the book is about. It's that it's about the journey beyond this mm-hmm. dysfunctional upbringing. And, and it doesn't pull any punches earlier because if I'm going to tell the reader, you can get past it. Well, I got to describe what you, in my case, I had to get past and what my brothers mm-hmm. had to get past. And the good news with my siblings is, that they're both doing well now. They're both responsible, good-hearted, good people, and they're doing well. So again, they're you know they're capable of doing that as well. And I'm going to hold my book up. So uh, <laughs> relative distance. Relative is distance. that a picture of you and your brothers? I imagine. That's correct. That's correct. And, and I will say, I, so I've learned about publishing too in this process. By the oh, way, yeah. that's an interesting process. It, yeah, the two worst industries you could work in: bicycling and publishing. But anyway. <laughs> but, uh, well, I'm, I'm a writer, you, so I get it. <laughs> I, I want to give you this. So there, there's 4 million books to get published a year, right? 4 uh-huh. million books. There's 23 million books that are for sale on Amazon. Now, Publishers Weekly, which is the most, I didn't know this, but I've learned this. They are the most, uh, I guess, very credible when they choose your book to review it. Well, they chose my book. So I was really excited. Oh, wow. They review like 9,000 books out of 4 million a year. And That's they amazing. Mine. 
So that's well, great. I, I've had some other good reviews. I guess what I'm saying to your readers, this is, I try to write a story that would carry you along. I want to say it sounds weird because your story is awful, but it's also heartwarming. <laughs> but I, I really, really enjoyed reading it. Well, I appreciate that. I, I mean, I, it's strange to say I enjoyed reading a book about what you experienced as a child, but I couldn't stop reading it. That's, that's we we do weird. a lot of podcasts with a lot of authors, and I skim them mostly. <laughs> and I'm going to be honest, I picked yours up with the intention yeah. of skimming it, right? And I read every word. A so, good book will do that to you, yes. right? Well, well well-written thanks. book. Well, that's, that that, speaks- that's, that's the deal. The, the two attributes of a good book for me are, am I emotionally engaged? Mm-hmm. You know, does it move me? Does it make me think? And the second thing is that I learned something. Exactly. And if I can from a book, then I feel like it's a good book. I think I've done that with my book. And I hope uh, your listeners will give it a try. And again, it's about the journey beyond. I don't pull any punches early, as you know, but it's it's about the journey beyond. Great. Well, how can how can listeners find you and your book? Thank you for asking. My website is davidlpruitt.com. You can learn more about you can get some statistics, some of the things I've quoted on abuse and homelessness that motivated me to write the book. You can learn a little bit more about my story. Uh, you can get some interviews that I've had that are on the website, but you can go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or any place uh, that you can get my book. And I'm looking to do good things with the book and anybody that's uh, interested would certainly be appreciated. I have links and show notes for all of that. And the name of that book again was Relative Distance, right? Yes. And thank you so much, David, for sharing your story today. Well, I want to thank thank you you for sharing your platform with me. That was really kind of you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Before we get to the listener-led lesson of the week, I want to take a minute to invite you to the Life Lessons VIP community on Circle. There you can interact with Jen and I in a private online community if you choose to. You can also connect with other listeners and community members. I host a monthly video chat where we just connect and hang out and talk. It's always very informative and fun. I learn so much each time we chat. We have members from all over the world. So last month, we learned a lot about Australia, which was fun. If you'd like to learn more, you can join us in the new VIP community by going to lifelessonscommunity.com slash VIP. There you will choose your monthly membership contribution of $4.99 or $9.99 per month. Choose the option that feels like the right value to you. If you truly get value from the podcast each week, we would hope that you would be willing to help support the work we do on the podcast and the costs associated with it by becoming a supporting member today. Rather than using a platform like Patreon that many podcasters use, we chose to use Circle instead because community and connection is so important to us. Even if you don't want to use the community, you are always welcome to pop in for the monthly video chat. Just be sure to turn on email notifications for the video chat group within Circle once you subscribe so that you will receive the invite and links to join. We would love to see you there. All right, now it's time for our listener-led lesson. It could be a life hack, a book recommendation, a special recipe, a kitchen tip, or anything along those lines. Today's listener-led lesson comes from Maureen in York, Pennsylvania. She has some great tips on connection and communication. She says, hello, I love your podcast. I was thinking about connection and how we can enhance it in small ways with others. People crave connection, even if they are shy, busy, or alone. 
When I engage in conversation, I try to ask questions that require more than a yes or no or I'm fine answer. When I do this, I learn so much more about the person I'm trying to connect with. I urge you to give it a try. For example, I recently learned from a new employee that they disco roller skate for recreation and fun. Amazing. I also learned that a new friend is an amateur photographer. What a beautiful hobby. Just by taking the time to ask the right questions, you really can have deeper connections and stronger communication. What a great reminder, and thank you, Maureen. And, you know, have you heard the the saying, Sherry, let's see if I can get it right. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. Is that what it is? Something like that, yes. Yeah. I think it's really, really true. You know, caring for other people and expressing that. Right. It's not that hard. Right. It's, yeah, just asking open-ended questions. Yeah, and listening. Don't ask a question that only requires a yes or no answer. Mm-hmm. And then listen. So it's the difference between how are you today and what are you looking forward to this week? What what are you doing today? Or you yeah. know what? Yeah, what's in store for you today? Right is a whole different question than how are you got today? anything exciting coming up? Things like exactly. That. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Well, thank you, Maureen. At the end of each show, we share a motivational quote from a listener, and today we have two quotes that are very similar from two different listeners. And listeners, we need your quotes and your good news stories. I almost didn't share these because these were the only two quotes I had in our quote vault. Uh So please, please email me at sherry at lifelessonscommunity.com so that I can use your quote or your good news stories on upcoming episodes. Or connect at lifelessonscommunity.com. That'll get it there too. Oh, that one too. Either way. Yeah. (laughs) However, these are so close that I just had to use them together. So the first was shared by Caroline Trudel and the second from Teresa Sellers. And the quotes are, life starts where your comfort zone ends and color outside of the lines. Maybe that is where your path begins. And I just could not love these two quotes more. I 100% believe that life begins when we move outside our comfort zone, when we move out of our current lane. Uh, Sometimes we have to make things a little messy in order to get to where we need to be. And if you want change and you are terrified, then it's time to put your big girl panties on and create change. I stayed stuck in my life for years because I was terrified of making a big change and I couldn't predict the future. And that was scary to me. But when I finally got brave, I can tell you that that is when I started living That is when my life changed for the better in all ways. And I am not kidding. I am now living a life that is fulfilling and full of calm, peace, and love. And I could not have gotten here if I hadn't colored outside the lines, rocked the boat, gotten messy. And every single one of you has it in you to go get what you want and live the life you want to. It is never too late. That is really such good advice. It's true. I mean, I, I think about that all the time, Sherry. You know, both of us have, have had a lot of life changes, but, you know, I think about my life before I wrote a book, uh-huh. before I said yes to being on a podcast, before, I mean, I could be right this minute, you know, sitting in an elementary school waiting for Christmas break to come. Right. Waking up in the morning, going to my school, going back home. I could be, still be living that life. And that was a beautiful life. I'm not saying it was a bad life, but it was a great you life. You were ready for change. I was ready for change. I didn't even realize it. Mm-hmm. But stepping out of my comfort zone has changed me so much. I was still, you know, this time in 2017, I was still getting up and going going to that job every day. 
Yep. That's been five years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> five yeah, years If ago. you ever feel like you're stuck or you're like, is this it? No, this isn't it. Figure out what you need to do to yeah. follow your dream. Yeah. Yeah. And just do it. And it's going to be scary and yep. you can do it. Thank you so much for joining us today. We would love to have you join us in the private Life Lessons VIP community. Go to lifelessonscommunity.com slash VIP to become a VIP podcast supporter. Your membership ensures that we can keep bringing you episodes of the Life Lessons podcast each week. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you haven't already, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. Reviews really do help us reach new listeners. We're a community-driven podcast, and here's how you can be a part of our show each week. Do you have a story to share for our good news segment, a listener-led lesson, or a motivational quote that means something to you? Or do you have an area of expertise that you would like to share as our featured guest for the week as we present our weekly life lesson? Email us at connect at lifelessonscommunity.com or use the link in show notes and then listen each week to hear your story or tip. Until next week, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.